0: If you're ready now for the ministry of the word, I invite you to take your Bibles again and turn in them to Genesis chapter 3. If you're using a provided Bible, I I'm imagine it's on page 2 or 3, somewhere around that. My Bible's on page 5. <coughs> Genesis chapter 3. We will read the whole chapter. The focus really is going to be in verse 15. Uh, just read the whole chapter in context. If you are with us a couple of Sunday nights ago, we looked at this in a different context. so uh, You're well-versed in this already. Uh, but before we hear God's word read, let us go before him and ask for his blessing upon our time. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we get ready now to hear your word read and proclaim, we pray as always, Lord, for your spirit to be present among us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear what we, you would say to us from your word. As always, Lord, I come before you humbly asking for your strength, Lord, to proclaim your word. And may I only speak what comes out of your word, Lord, or my opinion or my uh, thoughts on other things, Lord, don't matter at all. Only what matters is what comes out of your word. So, Lord, we pray for your blessing upon this time. May, may it be pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 1 reading to the end of the chapter. It's a long known story. I'm sure most of you know it. But again, please give your attention to God's holy and inspired word as it is read. <coughs> now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her a husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it in all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife Same Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and for his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. <coughs> Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to no good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand, and also take of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed the cherubim, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As far as reading God's holy word. Well, I know if I were to mention any kind of movie, I always get these blank looks from most of you because no one has ever seen the movies I've seen. But I would imagine most of you know the game show Jeopardy, right? I'm seeing Nod's. It's good. It's a game show that's been on forever. I actually looked into it. I think it started... 1964, and it's still going strong. And if you know the way that game works, right, it's it's a little different twist on a game show. They ask, they give you the answer to the question, and you're supposed to respond with the quote-unquote answer in the form of a question. And what we see here in Genesis 3, at least particularly verse 15, like I said, which is our focus, is the answer to a problem so in Jeopardy form, we have to sort of reply with what the the problem is. What is the question to which Genesis 3.15 is the answer? The answer, of course, being that the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. What is the, the problem? What is the question that is being asked here? We'll look at that in a moment. But this passage, of course, is the passage of the fall, right? If you know the story of Genesis, you know that in the beginning God created all things and then God placed man in the garden. God gave man a test and man failed the test. And that was called the fall of mankind from which come forth all kinds of sins into the world because of Adam's first sin. And then Adam was cast out. So that's the problem, though. That's the problem. The fall of mankind is a problem. The answer to that problem is the seed of the woman. The promise of this Messiah who will come. And that is the main point of our message this morning. The promise of Messiah is that one will come. There will be one who will come who will defeat sin, who will defeat the devil, and who will defeat them forever and give us everlasting life. Now, this is going to be a little different than I normally do messages this morning. This is a little more topical uh, than than I normally like to do. So we're going to first look at the promise made. The promise made here in Genesis 3, primarily, like I said, verse 15. And then we're going to look next at the promise anticipated, because this promise really goes through, as as some would say, sort of like a, a silk thread, a red silk thread throughout all the whole Testament is this promise as it is anticipated and pictured in various Old Testament stories and persons. So we'll look at some Old Testament passages in the second point and then we'll look at the promise realized as we'll look at Luke chapter 2. How the promise that was made way back in Genesis 3 is fulfilled with the birth of Jesus Christ. But first let's look at the promise made again. The coming of Messiah, the one who will crush the head of the serpent, is the answer to the problem, and the problem is this, the fall of mankind. We just looked at that story. As we noted, God created all things in Genesis 1, right? In the beginning was God, and he created out of nothing all that we see in the the space of six days. Then we see in Genesis 2 how he takes and forms man, Adam, out of the dust of the earth, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and then places him in the garden as sort of like a caretaker, as a steward of that garden, as one who will keep and watch over that garden. He gives him a partner. As he takes, puts the man into his sleep, gives him a partner. He takes a rib from Adam's side and makes his wife Eve. And then together with man, God makes a covenant. A covenant is an agreement, an arrangement, if you will, between two parties. God being one party, Adam being the other party in this covenant. And that covenant was this. He gives him a command. He says in verse um, 16 of chapter 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he makes an agreement with them. He says, look, Adam, I have given you this entire garden. You have everything here except for one thing. There's one tree I've designated. You shall not eat of it. It is a test of your obedience, Adam, to see if you will obey me. And the promise, of course, is that if Adam succeeds, he gets everlasting life. He will get eternal life. The, the, the stipulation, if he fails, of course, is that he will receive death. The day that you eat of it, you shall die. So so far, so good. Adam's in this garden. He's got a covenant arrangement with God. But then in Genesis 3, we see that that covenant is broken. And it's broken because Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes into Adam, into the garden. Now, Adam's first job was to guard the garden, and he didn't. He failed to guard the garden against the serpent. And then he goes up to Eve, and then, you know the story, right? I mean, he gets Eve, he tempts Eve to to eat the fruit. And he does so by getting her to doubt God's word. You see that very first off, right? You shall, the the serpent comes in and says to Eve, you shall not. Has God said this? You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? That's not what God said. Satan knows that. And you know the the way the, the thing works out. So they break the covenant, and then God kicks them out of the garden, as we saw. But that's not the end of the story. Now, the thing is, that could have been the end of the story. God could have said, okay, I I made a covenant with Adam, Adam broke the covenant, okay, fine, let's start over again. We'll just remake the earth, and I'll make a new man, and we'll start over again. But that's not what God does. Instead of that being the end of the story, it's really the beginning of what we call the covenant of grace. And that covenant of grace is promised in verse 15, where God, speaking to the serpent, says, Look, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Her seed will bruise your head. Her seed will deal a death blow to you, and and you will injure him in the process of that by bruising his heel. That is the promise that is put forth, that one will come out of the seed of the woman, one will come who will crush the head of the serpent, and that one will then then give that grace, he will be the the, the vehicle of grace to all of us. But again, here what we see in Genesis 3, instead of being the end, is the beginning of what we call redemptive history, all throughout the Bible here. So in the middle of the darkest moment in this very young creation, God makes a remarkable promise here about salvation. About how the seed of the woman, Eve, will crush the head of the sa- of Satan and in the process himself will suffer a great injury. And this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is one that really marks all of redemptive history. It is what we see all throughout the Bible. This between the forces of evil and the forces of good, if you will. In fact, as we move on now to the promise anticipated, that's the promise made. So in the failure of Adam, God makes this promise that one will come. And now we'll see as this promise is worked out throughout all of the Old Testament, if you just flip over to chapter 4, you already now see the, the beginning of this battle between the two seeds with the two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, how that chapter ends, you know how that chapter ends, right? The the story of Cain and Abel, again, is well known. Cain kills his brother in a fit of jealousy because God accepts his brother's sacrifice. And in the end of that chapter, verse 26, because Abel was one who in a sense was acceptable to God. God was pleased by his, his sacrifice and he is taken. So we think, okay, the seed of the woman has died, and then we see that, that Adam and Eve conceive another child. And we see in verse 26 of uh, chapter 4, as for Seth, the one who was born, to him also was a son born uh, who was named Enosh. And then we see here and then men began to call on the name of the Lord. You see this, this preservation of the seed of the woman here through the line of their son Seth. We see this godly seed line traced throughout the pages of Genesis as you come to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How God then makes a promise with Abraham that he will be a vehicle of blessing to the nations. And we'll look at that, we're willing, next week. But Abraham was called out of, out of pagan idolatry and told to follow the Lord. And many promises were given to him. And in him, he he says to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And that promise was then passed on from Abraham to his son Isaac, and then from uh, from him to his son Jacob. Particularly as they journey through the land of promise, God tells Abraham, it's like you and your descendants will have all of this land that I have given to you, promise is given and passed on to Abraham. In a sense, Abraham becomes a vehicle, if you will, to bring Messiah into the world. Because we know Messiah, Jesus, is a Jew, right? He is born of the Jewish people. So Abraham becomes the father of the Jewish people, and through him, this blessing comes into the world. But then we fast forward to the book of Exodus, and we see how in the book of Exodus, how that book begins... There is a pharaoh, an evil pharaoh, who does not know Joseph and the people of God, and he subjugates God's people. He puts them into uh, harsh slavery to, to build his building projects, and how God raises up Moses, how God not only raises up Moses, but preserves Moses, right? Because what pharaoh wanted to do was destroy the Hebrew people because they were becoming too numerous. He saves Moses, and Moses then becomes that vehicle through whom... God will continue to bring His blessings to His people. Before Moses died, He promises His people that there will be one who will come like Him, a prophet like Himself. This is another hint of Messiah coming, one who will be like Him. Not to mention that the entire Exodus story in a sense reflects the life of Christ, if you will. But that's not the end of the story because then Joshua, who was Moses' successor, would lead the people into many many mighty military victories and bring them finally into that land of promise. And in a sense Joshua is also a picture of Jesus. In fact, they share the same name. But we learn later on that as they come into this land, it is not the final rest. There's yet a rest to come, we learn that in the book of Hebrews. But uh, Joshua brings the people to the promised land and we think all is good and well, but You know, again, how the story goes in the time of the judges. God's people were continually oppressed. As they they turned away from God and turned to idols, God would send people in to to oppress them. And then the people would cry out. And then God would raise up these deliverers, these judges, to save them. Yet these judges, none of them are Messiah. Moses is not Messiah. Joshua is not Messiah. The judges are not Messiah. And we continue on. When the people wanted to king. And they chose Saul to be king. And God says, Look, I have a better king for you. A man named David, who who is a man after my own heart. Yet, even though the promises of David and his kingdom were given to him, uh, David was not the Messiah. And all the promised sons of David, all the kings that came from out of David, who, who were the Old Testament kings of Israel, that descended from David. They, too, were not the Messiah. They, too, were not the ones who would deliver Israel, who would be this one seed. So all this time, from the patriarchs to Joshua to Judges to the kings, you've got this promise in the back of their minds, this promise of one who would come. And I'm sure I would imagine, throughout all this time, Israel's wondering, who is this one? Who is this one who will come? Is it David? Is it Moses? Is it Abraham? Is it any of these people? During the time of the prophets, we see the Lord begin to promise no, it is none of these people. There is one coming who is yet to come, one who is better than Abraham, one who is better than Moses, one who is better than Joshua, one who is better than David. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah. We're going to look at a few passages in Isaiah. Chapter 7 is the first one. Again, throughout the entire Old Testament, you have these pictures that point to Jesus, yet none of these pictures are the reality. They are... They are, in a sense, like I said, this kind of red cord going through the Old Testament, showing you Jesus, yet not being the fulfillment in Jesus, all these figures in the Old Testament. And the prophet Isaiah, among many, all the prophets, speaks the most about this coming of the Messiah. And you see in chapter 7, verse 14, a well-known uh, passage that people know where here the prophet says, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign: behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the good and choose the evil, refuse the evil and choose the good. But here in this promise, here you have a promise of one who will come, one who will uh, come from a virgin, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Great name for a church, I think, right? But Emmanuel, right, the name itself means God with us. One is coming, the the, the Isaiah promises, one is coming whose name literally means God with us. Flip ahead now to Isaiah chapter nine. Another well-known passage of the promise of this one who is to come In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, Even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So, this one who is born of the virgin, one who is called Emmanuel, will be one who will have the government of the world upon his shoulder, one who will be a mighty counselor, one who is mighty God, one who is the prince of peace. But Isaiah is not done yet. Please turn to Isaiah 42. promise goes on as the later chapters of Isaiah are written to the exiles and he is writing to give them hope and he talks about this one who will be called the servant of the Lord, this one who will be a mighty servant. In Isaiah 42 the first of these so-called servant songs, you see here the prophet says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles as the nations. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail will be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Here is a servant that God promises to his people, one who will bring forth justice. And that is something that is sorely, sorely lacking in our world today, is true justice. Not social justice, climate justice, any kind of adjective you want to put in front of justice, but true justice. And notice how he will be a a merciful servant, right? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. It talks about his gentleness, about how he is is merciful and kind to the broken. He doesn't doesn't come and break the bruised reed. He doesn't come and quench the smoldering wick. He He is one who is kind, and he will bring forth justice into this world. The servant, the one promised, a couple more, please. Bear with me. Chapter 49. Again, normally I don't like to do this, but like I said, this is a more topical than we normally do. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. Again, about the servant of the Lord that Isaiah foresees. Listen, O the to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother he has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Oftentimes Jesus has spoken of having a sword coming out of his mouth, the sword of his word. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me. He has made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing, and in vain... Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob, that is Israel, back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore and preserve the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles and you shall be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And yet the servant will not only come and restore Israel to, the, to their Lord, but he will also be a light to the nations. He will go forth as the promise was to, I, to Abraham to be a blessing to the world. Now one final passage. Chapter 52. Starting in verse 13. How will the servant restore God's people? How will the servant be bring true justice to this world? How will the servant be a light to the nations? Well he'll do so by being a sacrifice for our sins. Chapter 52, 52 verse 13: Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many. Were astonished at him, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant, shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that when we see him there, uh, and, sorry, he has no form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers to silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for from the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they have made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He had pleased the Lord to lose him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his him. He shall see the labor of his soul, and be satisfied by his, by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him as a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The servant will be one who will be bruised for us. 53 verse 5. He was bruised. Remember back in the promise, right? The, The one, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, yet his heel will be bruised. Christ, the servant, the Messiah, was bruised for our sins. Why? Because our sins were laid upon his shoulders. Is laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he bore the wrath of God for our sins. That is what the work of the servant will do. That is what the one who is promised will come to do. That is how he will defeat sin and the devil forever. By taking upon himself the wrath that is deserved for our sins. But this is the promise. And this is how the promise is anticipated throughout the whole Old Testament. Again, waiting for this fulfillment waiting for this one to come, waiting for centuries, millennia even, waiting until now, until now. As we see the promise realized, we can turn please, one final time to Luke chapter two. We read this earlier. <coughs> Luke chapter two. Because most of those prophecies that you see from Isaiah They come in the 8th century, 700 years before the birth of Christ. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah prophesied that one would come of a virgin, that one would come who would would receive the government of the Lord, that one would come as a servant, as a light to the nations. One would come who would receive and and take upon himself all of the iniquities of the world. And that one comes as promised here in Luke chapter 2. So once while they we were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The birth of the one, the birth of the seed of the woman here in a very kind of nondescript way, really, right? Here he is born to two very obscure people. Right? Who's Joseph? Joseph was some carpenter who lived up in Nazareth. Nazareth would be like, you know, the West Virginia of the United States. You know, some, you know someplace that you know, people only think hicks and, and know-nothings come from, right? Nazareth was sort of like the backwater of Israel. And here he is betrothed to a very nondescript young woman. In fact, if you think about it, Right? Matthew pulls this story out a little more clearly. The one, uh, Mary, her virtue probably was being questioned among people. Because during this period, uh, when, when people got married, they were betrothed for a period of time. And that betrothal was just as binding as a marriage. Yet you are not to have sexual intercourse until the consummation. So here she is betrothed, and she is with child. So what are, what are people going to think? Right? What do people always think? <laughs> when you see a woman who's not married with child, right? So her, her virtue was probably certainly questioned. So you have the, the, the seed of the woman, the, the, the prince of peace, the one who was Emmanuel, the Messiah, to be born. You would expect it to be in extravagant fashion in a king's palaces, but here he is, the very son of God, the creator of heaven and earth. He is born in the lowest of situations. Yet on the night of his birth, even though this, 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 this child of promise is born in very obscure ways, on in, in, in the night of his birth, the angels of heaven break forth in praise the moment that he is born. Continue looking with me, please. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. The moment that Jesus is born, out I mean, in And this will be the sign to you: you will find a babe wrapped in bay, rapid, swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men." So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, "Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass." which the Lord has made known to us. The angels shouting in glory to the Lord, praising God for the birth of the Savior. Again, you would expect this this message to be carried forth into the highest halls of of political power, uh, to to the halls of Herod himself, but instead it was was proclaimed to a group of shepherds, and if you don't know anything about shepherds in that culture, shepherds were sort of looked down upon. They were like the least of these. Yet the glories uh, uh, the, the glorious news of these, this, this great news of glad tidings is proclaimed to the least of these. And that is how the gospel is to go forth, to the least of these. And upon the shoulders of this humble child were placed the hopes of all of God's people as they were waiting for the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. In fact, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on this years later, would say in the book of Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, this point in time when Mary gives birth to Jesus, Paul describes as the fullness of time. And that means that the the, the time was ripe, the time was ready. It was like a cup that is getting ready to overflow. The time is now for this child to be born. God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God brings forth Jesus Christ into the world so that Jesus will then go forth and do his work so that we, by his grace and mercy, can be brought into his family and adopted as his children. This child born 2,000 years ago in a manger, heaven to be kept in a manger because as we learn there is no room for them in the end is this long awaited Messiah. The seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head. How do we know that? Because after his life and work and resurrection are done, Paul the Apostle describes what this work that Jesus did, what he accomplished. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 we learn that in Christ you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised Christ from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. What did Isaiah say? Upon him the iniquity of the world was placed. He wiped out the handwriting of requirements so against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. He took all of our sins and nailed those sins to his cross. Colossians 2:15. Then having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in him. The death of Christ was the, 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 the death blow, the, the moment where the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. God keeps his promises and our salvation is based on the one who was promised way back in Genesis 3.15. Jesus Christ who crushes the head of Satan and secures our redemption. So we bring this to a close this morning. Satan the serpent who came into the garden, he's referred to many, many ways throughout the Bible. He's called the adversary. He's the adversary of God's people. He's the accuser, right? He was at one point the accuser that stood before God and would accuse us to him. Then he was cast out, and now Satan accuses us to our own hearts. He is the slanderer who says things that aren't true about us. He is the enemy of God's people, and the striking of his heel is seen all throughout redemptive history as God's people have been threatened in the Old Testament by extinction many, many times, particularly in the life of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, right, when he was born, Herod wanted to kill all the babies that were under two years old because he wanted to wipe out the one who's, who who is a threat to him as, as king of Israel. <laughs> and Satan will attack us, right? He attacks us by getting us to take our focus off of Jesus and to look at ourselves and to make us less, less effective, to look at our own selves and see how we're failures, because it's very easy to, to look at our own lives and see how we don't match up to what we see in God's word, right? God tells us we ought to do certain things, and we look If we are really to get a, take an honest assessment of our lives, we would see, I do not match up to any of this. That's what Satan wants to attack you by saying, look at how you don't match up to God's word. Look at how you're not good enough. Look at how you are not holy enough. Look at how you're not loving enough. Takes our focus off of Jesus, who is our righteousness, and to look at ourselves. The story of Genesis 3 is a sad tale of paradise lost. The failure of Adam is our representative to keep and guard the garden. Yet in that failure, a promise is made. A promise of one who will come and succeed we're out of failure. And despite our failure to live up to, as God calls us, our union with Christ gives us all we need for salvation. We have everything we need in Christ. We don't have to look to ourselves for our salvation. Christ gives us everything we need. And the promise of the Messiah is that what we cannot do for ourselves God does in and through him and that is indeed good news let us pray Heavenly Father as we see here in the promise of the Messiah Lord we see the one to come how he was promised way back in the beginning how he was pictured and hinted at all throughout the Old Testament and finally realized in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now we look back on this, Lord, 2,000 years later, upon the person and work of Christ, what he did for our salvation. I pray, Lord, that we too will live out of grateful hearts for what Christ has done for us, how he took away our iniquities, how he bore the wrath of God for our sins, and how we who come before him faith and repentance receive the forgiveness of sins that we so desperately need. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to impress upon us how we are to continue to focus on Christ, focus on his work in our lives, focus on how we are adopted into his family and held on to him as we hold on to him by faith as he holds on to us with an unbreakable grip. So, Lord, I pray that you will bless these dear ones here this morning. Pray, Lord, that we will go forth and live as God has called us to live, being that salt and light in the world around us, sharing the good news of this one who came to crush the head of its serpent.